Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 25th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Put on Jesus, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. Agape means selfless love, sacrificial love. It's not an emotion, it's not an attraction, it's not a wooing, it's not a recognition of of beauty by somebody, it's a decision. It's a decision that we make in obedience to the Lord. It's not easy, it is incredibly hard to be kind to people that are not kind to you. Rise to the level that a supernatural God living inside of you has the control to allow you to minister in his name. Love people that are different than you. You know, the last two weeks, uh, Thomas and Bob showed us that Christians are bound not only to be obedient to those in authority, um, but also to perform our social and relative duties, especially that of love, to everyone we encounter. Last week, Pastor Bob closed off with with, uh, Romans 13, verse 10, that told us, right, that love does no wrong and love fulfills the law. In in that, right, we looked at um, the aspect of three different kinds of love that God called us to. In, in, In each of these, it was a verb. God said agapeo, he's talking about the action, what we do, uh, not what we say. And so we understand love to be a verb. But what's interesting is that in verse 10, when he said that love does no wrong, and when he said love fulfills the law, he actually used it in a noun. And when we think of a noun, we think person, place, or thing, but we understand what he's saying here. He's saying that God himself is love. He is the standard of love. And his context is that this standard of love is what compels. It's the noun that compels a verb. It is because of the standard of God's love that it compels us to love, to put to action. If the Holy Spirit is in you, then you are to be compelled by love. This is a simple message of the gospel today. And I say the gospel is simple but the everyday practical application, not so much, because we struggle with it. Romans 13, 11 through 14 is about a pure and an exemplary life. It's a life as members of society, enforced by the consideration he's gonna say today that the night is far spent and that the day is at hand. What he's saying is that the time of suffering and trial is nearly over and that our deliverance is imminently approaching, that Christ is coming back. I'm sure that many of you have pondered the deeper thought of when is Christ coming back? Is he gonna come back in my lifetime? Is he gonna come back today? Is he gonna come back five years from now, 50 years from now, 1,000 years from now? The point of that is not anything other than Christ is imminently going to return and nothing changes our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Whether it's today or a thousand years from now, we are building the kingdom of God. We are light in a dark world, deliverers of his love to all people. When he comes back, he wants to find us faithful, faithful to be a light in a dark world, faithful to put on the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, he, I'll go to it, Romans 13, 11 through 14, he says, besides this, you know, that the t- you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Our Father and our God, Lord, we come to you now. This is simple in its concept, but so difficult to put off, to take off the works of the darkness, but to put on the armor of light that we wouldn't even entertain a thought that would lure and entice us by our desires to gratify our lust, to gratify our desires. But Lord, we pray that you would shape us and mold us into the image of yourself, that we would grow in this grace and we would grow in the greater knowledge of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Many of you probably have heard the term frog in the kettle. The term frog in the kettle I'm going to be using today is kind of an intertwined metaphor of life. It is life. If you understand the concept of the frog in the kettle, because you know out west here we're not big eaters of frog legs, although there is a restaurant here in town that serves them. But frog legs is one of these things where you have to in fact boil the frog. And the difficulty of this is that if you boil the water first and put the frog in, the frog will in its creativity, will jump out because that's hot. However, if you in fact put the water in the pot and make it lukewarm, room temperature, the frog will swim around like he's in paradise. And as the heat builds underneath the frog, the frog will never jump out but will in fact die. That's our life. Life is slowly turning up the heat underneath us and we're going through this life with this pressure, really happy and enjoying the day and not knowing that the day is at hand. This is what Paul's trying to get across to us. Years ago, I attended a business conference for Christian businessmen at Forest Home. I wanna say this was in probably the 1990s or whenever it was, but there was this motivational speaker. He was not only great at his motivational speaking, he in his business acumen, but he was in fact a lover of Christ. His name, it was Charlie Tremendous Jones, and he was fantastic, very funny. And one of the things he did at the beginning of this event is he told us that he would be giving us an, an, an object. He'd be giving us something so that we could remember the context of what he's trying to do here today. And he was trying to help us understand how do you manage people? How do you manage the people around you? In a business context, he was talking about how do you recruit the best talent? How do you um, retain the best talent? How do you motivate the productivity of the best talent? And so we got all the way to the end and he had made this promise he was gonna give us some sort of object to help us remember this. And he forgot 
right? And we we're like, hey, what about, the, what about the thing? You know, you were gonna give us something. And he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. He goes, I have people who are gonna hand those out. And he starts handing them out, and I'm sitting there looking at this package that I got, and it's a sucker. <laughs> and the sucker is shaped like a human thumb. He says, I want every one of you to know that every person on the face of the earth, including you, including me, is a giant thumb sucker. Because you want what you want when you want it. Your battle in life is your desire. Your battle is that you don't even know you're in battle. And you have to recognize this to live by it. The subtlety of our desires is incredible. It doesn't take much. We all know, right, that I can't violate commandments two through 10 without violating commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other God but the one true God. So idolatry is the biggest desire within our heart. In fact, not too long ago, Jill and I were driving to the Costco. And as we're going to it, my wife begins to push on her fake brake on the, on, the, on the passenger side, and she begins to brace for impact. And this is an exaggeration, right? There's no one around us. And so we're going through this, and I'm thinking to myself, and this is the same lady who tells me where to turn left in the neighborhood I grew up in. And I find myself getting mad, irritated. So what's happening? What's happening is my idolatry of my idol of reputation is being attacked. I'm being attacked that I'm not a good driver is what I'm interpreting. It's triggering me. I'll get to this, but I, I don't like this term, trigger me, because it, it seems to make it her responsibility, her problem. The problem has two thumbs and it's me. Because this is an opportunity to put on the light, the armor of God's light. This is an opportunity for me to put on Jesus Christ. This is an opportunity for me to trust in the Holy Spirit. But instead, something horrible comes out of my mouth. And then I need to get a block away and say, will you forgive me? Because I allowed myself to be lured and enticed. The water became boiling underneath me and I had no idea that I was even in the water. That's the subtlety that is being communicated to us here today. But I want to look at the connection. The connection between Romans 13, 11, Pastor Bob spoke about this, owe no one anything except to love each other. He says to do this knowing the time. You start to think, man, what has time got to do with this? He says besides this in the ESV is probably meant to refer to the motivation of verses eight through 10, not specifically the command of love. In other words, what he's saying is that there's a shot clock, there's a timer going in this life. You are to be compelled by the noun of God's love so that it, it produces an action of God's love in you in the verb. I'd put it like this. Paul is saying, for two chapters now, I've been telling you that you should owe no one anything but love. Everything else that you may owe someone, make the repayment an act of love. Bob spoke about these four loves, philia, storge, um, eros, and agape. Philia is friendship love. Storge is affection love that we have for our children or our parents or our siblings. 
and eros is the love between the sexes. Each of these three are what's called the natural loves. They're not God's love, they're your love. Therefore, they produce within them both moral and immoral support. If someone disagrees with you or someone has told you you're wrong or you're crazy or you're any of those different things, who do you call? A friend. A friend will tell you exactly what you need to hear because the friend only wants to protect the friendship, not you. Whereas Storge, right, this is what all the kids ignore when their parents say he's not the right guy, he's not the right guy, he's not the right guy. They go to their friends and their friends say, oh, he's dreamy, he's wonderful, he's all these different things. And your parents just continue to sit there and say, he's not the right guy, he's not the right guy. Because they care about the object of their affection. It comes the closest to God's love in that it's a kind of a cheap knockoff, but it's in fact imitating this aspect. It loves the unlovable. But we're talking about God's love, perfect love. God is the standard of this love. And what he's saying is that this love is also influenced by time. Point number one, time is an influence of our love. Paul says in verse 11, he says, besides this, you know the time. So in addition to love being compelled by love, in addition to this, there's a shot clock. Besides the motivation for love that it fulfills the law, you know there's a shot clock. You know that there's time. Let your knowledge of the time also move you to let you love each other and to love your enemies. Paul mentions at least three things in this time that will stir up our love. He uses a time reference that stirs our love. I'm gonna do them in the reverse order. I'm gonna go to 12a first. In verse 12a, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, right? This is a great word of hope. The night here stands for this age of darkness and all its sin and misery and its death. And what does Paul say about it, right? He says the night is far gone, that's hope. The age of sin and misery and death is almost spent. It's almost gone, but it's still here. You can think about this in probably two biblical ways. I'm sure you can come up with more, but first, the key way that is different is that the day has dawned in Christ Jesus, in Jesus. Jesus is the end of the fallen age. He defeated sin and pain and death and Satan The decisive battle itself is over. The kingdom is come. The kingdom is at hand. Eternal life has come. In fact, Isaiah 60, uh, one through three, it'll be on the board later in our final song, but it's this prophecy of the time that light will come to the world. That light is the person of Jesus Christ and he put an end to it. He put an end to the law from the standpoint that he fulfilled it. And now he's calling us to fulfill it in our love. It's certain the day has arrived. Nothing can stop a rising sun. The second biblical thought is to know that time is different. God's concept of time and our concept of time are two completely different things. Second Peter 3.8 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. God resides outside of time, but you and I don't. And while we're in this time, it is at hand. And it's not for you to sit around and do nothing. You can look at one of your children and say, hey, are you up? I'm up. But you're still sitting there doing nothing. 
Time is of the essence. But I'm up, but you're still doing nothing. We have to understand that there is a time. And if we do not have the hope of this time, that the day is evil, that there's misery, that there's death, that this is far gone, right? It's, it's worked its way to the positive side and the day of righteousness, the joy and life that is at hand. Where would we get the resources to love in the midst of all these losses if I didn't have the hope of the return of Christ? The second verse is in 11b. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believe. This is not only a message of hope, but a message of hope and faith. For those of us who struggle under the incompleteness of our salvation, you're saved already, but not yet. Of course, our sins are already forgiven. Our guilt is already removed. We are already justified. God died for my past sin, my present sin, and even my future sin, but no, that doesn't give me permission to do anything that I want so that grace can abound. I should be compelled by the love of God that resides in me. Romans 5.1 told us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8, of course, told us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But salvation is so much more than this. It is being done with sin. Do you realize that if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, then you are done with sin? Not because of you, but because of Christ in you. It's being done with disease. It's being done with discouragement and depression. It is being done with sinning. And most of all, it's being done with seeing Christ only in a mirror dimly. That's what salvation will bring. Salvation is finally and fully to see him face to face. Right here, right now, we live by faith, but when we go into his presence, we will live by sight. And what Paul is saying, every day of your groaning life, you're getting closer and closer to the greatest thing of all, Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is just simply more Christ. Our final salvation is Christ. And he is nearer every day. This should build our faith. It should build our hope. This hope in the midst of all of our frustrations and all our losses and all of our pain sustains the power to love each other and to love our enemies as ourselves. And then finally, in 11a, this is critical. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The night of sin and misery and death is far gone and the day of love and joy and life is at hand. Paul is saying this is an hour for being awake, not asleep. Sleep is what people that are lost in this age are doing. They're sleepwalking. They are the frog in the kettle. The water has been turned up and they have no idea where they're swimming. You have to ask yourself, do you want to spend your life asleep in the dream world of this age? Don't you want to be awake in the dawning light of the age to come where Christ and his people will lead lives so full of joy and love and life and eternal harmony with God? 
And this too is a great incentive to love. 1 John 2.8 says this, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Christ is already shining in our lives today. Both Paul and John are saying the same thing. Oh, no one anything except to love because you know the time. Jesus is at hand. It doesn't matter whether he comes back in five minutes or 5,000 years. The goal is the same, to be faithful, to love God and to love people and to make disciples. Nothing will change that, this side of glory. If the darkness is passing away and if true light is already in fact shining and the true light is Jesus Christ and the very presence of the love of God, then those who wake up from the dream world and unbelief and walk in the light will love each other and love their enemies. And I have to throw this in there because if Jesus is imminently returning and there's gonna be this huge event where Jesus comes on the clouds, I gotta know how I'm supposed to dress because this is gonna be quite an event. It's point two, dress rightly for God's glory. Because Paul's gonna tell us exactly how we are to dress. Paul's gonna tell us how to live, how do we we wake up from sleepwalk and unbelief. (coughs) He says in verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then. So then what? Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's, I have to cast something off and I have to put something on. You see the word so then, right? This means that the way we live and the way we wear and what we wear follows the very time that we're in hand. The day is at hand. So then take off your deadly sleepwalking clothes and put on what? Paul chooses a word that implies that the Christian life is not just a wakeful life, but a wakeful battle. He says, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor, the armor of light. So while we were sleepwalking in unbelief, oblivious to the reality of Christ as the frog in the kettle, we walked in darkness and clothing we wore, he calls works of darkness. We were dressed in works of darkness because the Christian life is a battle. The awake life is to be at war. It's not an internal war, it's not my internal struggle. Or I should say, it is an internal war, it's not a cultural struggle. The battle is going on within me. It's my desire that wants to lure and entice me away from the light. It wants to unclothe me, have me go for a great swim in a wonderful pool as the water boils and makes me non-effectual, ineffectual in my ministry. You see, if there's one thing that Satan knows, it's that nothing can make you uh, not be loved by God. He's already told us that in Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. So what what does the world wanna do for you? Lull you to sleep put you in the water, make you ineffectual in what you're doing. He says put on language again in verse 14 though. 
And this time he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're gonna need to ask ourselves the question, the armor of light and the Lord Jesus Christ, how do they relate to each other? What's the difference between putting on the armor of light and, in verse 12 and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14? Because what we're gonna put on, in addition to this armor of light, we're gonna put on the character that reflects our new identity. Point number three. Keep in mind, as we move forward now, right, putting on the armor of light or putting on Jesus Christ, verses 12 and 14, are not instructions of how to become a Christian. The assumption here is that you're already a Christian. This isn't about your salvation, this is about your sanctification. This is about how you grow as an individual in Christ. Paul is calling us to be what we are in Christ. You and I are children of the light, children of the day. And what he's saying is now you need to dress like it, you need to live like it, and better of all, you're gonna need to fight like it. Paul is using the very same language here, put on, as he does in other areas of scripture. But in particular, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 and 8, Paul says this, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." Did you catch that? Paul mentions two pieces of personal armor here, namely the breastplate and the helmet, and he defines them by what he means in each of them. By the breastplate, he means faith and love, and by the helmet, he means the hope of salvation. You have to put these on every single day. So the armor of light is faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these, of course, is love. So we come back to Romans 13, 12, and the meaning now becomes, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That is, let us put on faith, hope, and love. Worldly weapons shouldn't scare us. What should scare us is that we are the frog in the water, and the water's heat is rising because we don't yet realize that I'm in a battle, that I'm in a war. But just the opposite, right? These weapons, they aim to dull your senses to go back to sleep, to make you non-effectual in your relationship and your pursuit of Christ. Paul says we must wake up to the battle that we're in. We must put on the armor of light. We must put on faith, hope, and love. And only these things can keep us awake. But what? How? Faith in what? Hope in what? Love for what? This is the parallel between 12 and 14. Verse 12 says, put on the armor of light. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the link between them is faith, hope, and love. So if I take verse 14 to mean, at a minimum, he's saying, put on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, putting on Christ each day doesn't mean wearing him as a duty or an obligation. We get it so wrong when we're just being a Christian out of obligation and out of duty. When we're not compelled by the noun. You see, it's the compelling of the noun that God is love that compels us to love. 
putting on Christ each day, right? We have to do this with the idea that his outfit that he's given you, this breastplate and this helmet, is wearing him as protection in a fallen world. That is, trusting him and wearing him as the supplier of all of your future needs. That is, hoping in him, wearing him as your supreme treasure. Because that, that is loving him. You see, when you love him, all other relationships take care of themselves. When you do things out of duty and obligation, it's not for him, it's for you. You're checking the box of performance as if you're the one that's holy or you're pretending that you're not a sinner at all. But he's saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ to trust him, hope in him, cherish him for everything so that the night is far gone, the day is what's at hand. Take off the pajamas of sin and put on the armor of light. The Christian life is not just walking, it's a war. The armor of light is faith and hope and love. So put on faith in Jesus and hope in Jesus, love for Jesus. This is what he means by put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the noun, God is love. How do I do that? How do I, how do, I do that? I can answer this question by simply from the nature that comes of faith, hope, and love themselves, but it feels too vague. There is an inward and an outward movement of the heart. God who took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh is now taking you through a a process. In the inward movement, God's grace is revealing to you that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And in that inward movement, he's saying that you must repent, you must change your mind, you must change your thinking, you must go a completely new direction. And you can only go this new direction if you, if you implement faith, hope, and love. And when you do this, you experience great joy inwardly. And then God's grace outwardly reveals to you this incredible opportunity to love and minister to people around you. And the only way you can do this is if you in fact die to yourself that it's not my desire but it's his glory that I exist. And I step out in faith and I trust him again and I rejoice over whatever he's doing. I'm not disappointed in what he's doing. I'm content in what he's doing. I'm not in control of what he's doing, but I'm being found faithful, hopeful, and the verb of his love. Verse 14, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify gratify its desires. The word provision means literally forethought. Your repentance is gonna have to have a new thought. It has to have a predictive. It has an anticipatory thought. I have to have forethought. And the whole sentence itself would go something like this. This is Jeff, not not someone else, right? But it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let any thought in your head that would lead to a sinful desire not just to gratification of the sinful desire, but even the desire itself. I've got to take that off and I have to put on Christ so that I don't entertain anything. 
We all know how that works, whether you're male or female, young or old. We know that by thinking certain thoughts, we can awaken certain sinful desires. Paul's gonna give us three examples of sinful desire and what they in fact produce. In verse 13, he says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Number one, he says, not in orgies and drunkenness. Number two, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Number three, not in quarreling and jealousy. Are you thinking the metaphor? You're the frog and the water is the works of darkness that you're clothed in. It's boiling up around you. In his number one illustration, inordinate desires for drink, or we might say substance abuse. Alcohol, drugs, nicotine, caffeine, etc. Your vapes, your whatever they are, right? This is the waters of comfort. You're seeking the comfort of these things rather than the one true God. Or point two, inordinate desires for sex, whether fornication or adultery or pornography. You're just simply putting on the waters of pleasure and the works of darkness. They're luring and enticing you away from a loving and a holy God. Or thirdly, the waters of pride and arrogance, the desires for attention and status, your social media, your positions, or anything that controls, that produces quarreling and jealousy. This is all of social media. This is our media. These are all these things, right? And the point to verse 14 is he says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here's the war. The battle is you. The battle is your desire. Remember in Genesis 4, he told Cain and Abel, sin is crouching at the door and its desires are contrary to yours, but you must master it. Paul told us in Romans 1 that he's handed us over to our own desires, our own lust in the ESV. And in James 1.14, he told you when temptation comes, you'll be lured and enticed by your own desire. Don't let any thought in your head that gives rise to these sinful desires. If you are bored or lonely or tired or discouraged or feeling hopeless, He's saying, don't ponder the relief of alcohol or drugs. They simply want to put you to sleep. They stir up the sleepwalking in you and the works of darkness. Because you're seeking comfort, not Christ, not the light. If you're a frustrated housewife or a working mom, married to a man who never learned affection, never learned tenderness, never learned how to simply talk about what matters to you, don't daydream about the romantic Mr. Perfect Don't let those thoughts even enter into your head because you're seeking comfort through fantasy. You're not turning to the light of God. If you're a frustrated husband or a single man who wonders why there is no woman to embrace or why the woman you have doesn't want to embrace, don't let illicit thoughts into your mind. You're seeking the idol of pleasure. Don't put them there with your fantasy. Don't Do it with your computer. You realize that 12% of all websites on the internet are pornographic. 25% of all search engines and requests are related to pornography. Internet revenue from 
this last year in the United States is $2.5 billion alone. Don't tell me there's not a problem. You're thinking about pleasure. You're thinking about comfort. You're not turning to the armor of light. Put on that breastplate of faith and hope. Put on the person of Jesus Christ for he is the fulfillment of the law. He is our hope of salvation. None of these things will satisfy your lust, your desire, your anything. Only Christ will do this. Don't be comforted to this darkness. The night is far gone. That's our hope. The day is at hand. Put on the armor of light. Put on Christ. Don't let your thoughts into the mind that lull you to sleep and to sinful desires. Or what about quarreling and jealousy? You know, if you've been wronged, maybe even years ago, or you've been overlooked or belittled or misunderstood or abandoned, can I encourage you, don't let these thoughts trigger you. I'm so tired of the abuse that comes with people saying, what you said triggered me. Man, that 1972 Psychology Today article that told you how you deal with confrontation, hey, when you did X, it made me feel like Y. Throw that thing away. Stop positioning to win an argument. Stop using what someone else did for the lure and enticement was your desire. What has two thumbs and is the problem? This guy. Take personal responsibility. Why did it trigger you? It's not my wife's fault that she braced for impact. It's mine. We can't live this way. We must put our hope, our faith, and our trust in God. You see, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is not just the alternative to making provision for the flesh. It is the way we keep from making provision for the flesh. It is the way we kill these sinful thoughts. We mortify the flesh. It's the renewing of your mind. Stop performing like you're holy or pretending that you're not a sinner at all. You see, when you put on the armor of light, it's fresh faith in Christ. It's hope in Christ. It's love for Christ. Not duty, not obligation, but for Christ and Christ alone. Last week, Pastor Bob, owe no one anything but to love. It's about how you love other people. It's about the motivation that comes from knowing that the day of peace and joy and righteousness has dawned and that we are people of the day, we're not people of the night. Verse 13 means simply, let us walk properly in the daytime. So here's my charge to you, Highlands. Walk properly. The night is far gone, that is your hope. The day is at hand. Christ's return is imminent. Walk properly. Walk in love. Show Scottsdale. Show Phoenix. Show your family, your friends, your world, etc. That sharing the light of Christ is identified by the way you love. Period. As I call our worship team back up, it is, it is great joy, right, that comes within us to know that here as we assemble as brothers and sisters in Christ, we get to partake in communion and the remembrance of Christ. You should have picked up one of these communion 
wherever you want to call these. <laughs> There's bread. I know that the bread is in a little thinner pocket because I stood at it during the first service and said, man, I got no bread. But it's hidden right there. But if you take that bread out, and if you got, raise your hand if there's anyone who's missing any, and they'll, they'll try not to throw it like peanuts at the game. Everyone got one? I think there was one more person over here. Right over there. Right to your left, ma'am. This is incredible, what God did for us. That he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that we inside of us could have the love of God. But we have to yield to it. We have to surrender. We have to take off the works of darkness and we have to put on the light. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke and he says, this is my body broken for you. So that whenever you eat it, when we gather together as brothers and sisters, we do this in remembrance of him. And on that night, he also took the cup and he told us that the, this is the new covenant, his blood. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that you could stand here today, sit here today, holy and blameless because of his works and his righteousness. Your faith, your hope, your everything is tied up in that. As we put on the armor of light, as we put on Jesus Christ, we drink this in remembrance of him. Brothers and sisters, what a great opportunity. I hope that you leave here today awake, ready for the battle that's at hand. Would you stand with us and worship God wholeheartedly? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I hope that you are awake, that you're ready for the battle that is at hand. Put on the armor of light. Put on Jesus Christ, the very love of God, to be an example and a model as an ambassador of his grace. That's who we're called to be. Right now I need, um, if there's at least about six or so of you strong, burly people that would help us, we're gonna take these things by pallet jacks, but we need a little help getting up the hill and over the, uh, the edge here. So if you wouldn't mind meet at the, uh, the sound station in the middle, uh, then we can crank this out. Uh, that would be great if I can get about six or so of you to help us with that, that'd be wonderful. Our prayer team is here. If you're needing a prayer or just simply want to come and give praise, I can't encourage you to take advantage of that enough. Now may the Lord our God keep you. May his light shine upon you. And may you be beacons of this light and truth to the glory of him. Minister to one another. I love you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>